Good morning. My name is Alec Moyer. I'm with uh, Reformed University Fellowship, which is starting on the UL campus this fall, uh, and with Parish Church in Lafayette. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to preach here this morning. Um, I'll, my, my text for this morning will be Psalm 4, which you can turn to, Psalm 4. Um, before I read that, let me pray for us. Lord, you have promised that your word will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Through your spirit, quiet our minds and open our hearts and ears to hear and to be taught, encouraged and changed. Amen. Psalm 4. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Please be seated. (coughs) This summer at Parish Church, we've been going through a, a summer series in the Psalms. Our goal has been to engage a broad range of the emotions and the experiences that constitute our lives, both positive and negative, and to interpret them through the lens of what God says about, says about us, says about the world around us, and about himself. Psalm 4 gives us a chance to look at the idea of, ident- of identity, especially the identity provided to us by Christ's work. In our world, identity today, at least, in the the Western world today, is often confused with an authentic emotional life. A life in which emotions take center stage in determining who we really are, as if we're only being who we really are if we are following our emotions. That's how the world today sees it. But in this psalm, God who's speaking through King David, reminds us that identity in Christ is objective. And it serves as the lens through which we interpret and react to our emotions, not the other way around. The first line of the psalm provides the foundation for understanding everything that follows. Answer me when I call. 
O God of my righteousness, David says. Now, the, the meaning of this is, is not exactly intuitive for us. In what way is God the God of our righteousness? We may first go to the, the New Testament notion of imputed righteousness, in which God supplies to us a righteousness that is not our own, Christ's righteousness. That may be the first place where we go. And this, this would make God the source of our righteousness. And this notion is, is indeed related to what David has in mind here. But the, the specific phrase before us in its context, in the original language, has more of a sense of vindication. God is the source of David's vindication here in Psalm 4. We see in the, in the context of the rest of the psalm that David's honor is being questioned by others. He's facing some sort of false accusation or assault on his character. And he's saying that God will vindicate him. God sees who I am, David is saying. It is God's judgment of my character that really matters. My identity is bound up in what God says about me, not in the opinions of others. Ultimately, we live to the audience of one. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. It is the Lord who judges us. While this truth may reassure us of who we are in the face of conflict and unfair criticism, the thought of having our thoughts and deeds judged by God is not necessarily a comforting one. In fact, we might prefer to be judged by people if we really understand the contents of our heart. God is just in his judgments, and if we have engaged in any amount of self-examination at all, we know that we are not. Even as we remember that our identities are not anchored in others' opinions of us, we find no comfort in God's judgments if we stand before him resting on our own righteousness, our own merits. And this is where the New Testament concept of imputed righteousness comes in. This is where Christ comes in. Resting in our vindication before God, taking comfort in what God says about us, is only actually comforting if we come to Him not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness given to us or imputed to us. In fact, what David's cry on this first line of Psalm 4 means to us on this side of the cross is that our identity, our vindication rests in Christ, in our justification by Christ, our adoption by Christ, our unity with Christ, His presence with us through the work 
of the Holy Spirit, his work to conform us to his image and our promised glorification into his image. This is what we mean in the song that we just sang beneath the cross of Jesus. I feign to take my stand. The cross of Jesus is our source of identity and vindication. And these are the basic categories of the Christian life. It's fair to say that the entirety of our spiritual lives rests on remembering and rehearsing and reflecting on how these works of Christ give us a new identity. Only when we drink from these waters deeply can we, with David, root ourselves in God's vindication of us rather than in the opinions of others or even in our judgments of ourselves. As I've been thinking about starting RUF, a new campus ministry at UL this fall, I've wanted to immerse myself again and into and, and be reminded of the foundational truths of the redemption that God used to give me a new identity when I felt that my world was crashing around me. These are the same truths that students need in order to ground their own identities as they enter into this exciting and tumultuous and anxious and confusing chapter in their lives. The categories of justification, sanctification, glorification, unity with Christ and Christ's presence with us. Early on in in my adult life, I had all the external trappings of success. Everything seemed to be in place for me to be one of life's winners, except for the fact that I had absolutely no idea who I was. I had pursued everything in selfish ambition and conceit. I was an empty shell of a person because I had only ever pursued empty things. I had rooted my identity in empty things that could not deliver wholeness. But it was in the midst of this emptiness that God opened my eyes to the identity provided in Christ. In Christ, He justified me by providing a righteousness and value and identity, not my own, that went deeper than my professional performance and outward experience. In Christ, he adopted me as his own child who will never be cast out of the household of God. And I am unified with Christ who sent the Spirit to live in me even as Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. We have God in the flesh with us who has borne all of our weakness and all of our sorrows. In Christ, we have the power to truly change and to be renewed and conformed into his image. Not merely just to adopt new habits and new life skills or a new outward appearance that kind of makes our lives work better, but to actually have our deepest desires and affections changed, the deepest parts of us that drive everything else. And finally, we have a new hope that we will ultimately inherit. Sorry, there's a spider coming down right in front of my face. I don't know how that happened. 
we have a new hope that we will ultimately inherit everything that Christ inherits and be made perfect. In short, the gospel makes us God's people, which was God's original promise to Abraham back in the beginning, Genesis 12. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is our identity. It was nothing short of a new identity for me. It completely changed how I saw myself and my purpose. In time, it would change how I valued relationships and other people. It changed the role of the opinions and judgments of others in my life. It changed the role of my own judgments and my own guilt and my own self-condemnation in my life. It changed everything. So going back to Psalm 4, the vindication of God, the righteousness and identity provided by God is the guiding light for how David engages all the troubles found in the remainder of this psalm. David's identity as provided by God is the key to interpreting Psalm 4. He interprets his experiences and his emotions Through the lens of this identity. In verse 1b, David calls out to God to hear his prayer once again. Remembering that God's presence has brought him relief in the past. You have given relief, given me relief, David says. When I was in distress, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. He draws on his identity as a child of God to call for help in the midst of the conflict that he describes going forward. Verse 2. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David's enemies are committing two kinds of evil. First, They shame him and attack his honor. They drag his name through the mud. And secondly, they do this because they themselves are motivated by vain words and lies. And notice that David does not mince words about how he is mistreated here. He calls evil, evil. He does not overlook their faults in order to maintain some veneer of peace or holiness. But his response in verse 3, while he's telling the truth about how he's mistreated, his response in verse 3 is not to lash out in anger and curses, but to look back again to the promises of God and the identity they provide. In verse 3, but know, how long will you seek after vain words and seek after lies, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. David knows that he belongs to God, that he lives to an audience of one, and that God is with him when he calls out. Verses 4 through 5 are in many ways the pinnacle 
of the psalm. And it brings into focus the, the central importance of understanding and, and an awareness of our own emotions for our inner lives. Be angry, David says. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. David applies his identity in God to the way he engages his own emotions. And note first that he acknowledges the reality of his emotions. He acknowledges their importance. He doesn't ignore them or suppress them in order to put on a facade of false strength or false holiness. He doesn't go the John Wayne route, as we are told is somehow good. He engages them squarely, but he also controls his response. And then he takes the time to to scrutinize them before speaking, before acting. He wants to discern what is good and right about what his emotions tell him. And how are his emotions lying to him? He wants to view his emotions through the lens of truth and not the other way around. The lens of who God is, of who David is, and of the sin in David's life. This discernment can then lead to right sacrifices. That is, from a New Testament perspective, right worship. Worship given without hypocrisy from a true and pure heart. Without a disconnect between one's outward actions and one's internal life. The true heart of hypocrisy. There is little that's more disheartening in the... the, in in, in judging the life of the church and the health of the church today, there's little that's more disheartening than to meet the grown children of believers who themselves want nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with the body of Christ because they witnessed or even suffered from the hypocritical disconnect between the faith their parents professed in church and how they responded to the difficult emotions and situations of family life. When we don't engage our emotions, when we don't pay attention to them, that only means that they begin to influence us without us knowing it. It only means that we do not know ourselves. Emotions are windows into our souls. Not perfect windows. They're not always telling the truth, but they tell us something about our true loves, our corrupted loves. When corrupt emotions go unscrutinized against the true identities that God gives us, we find ourselves speaking and acting in conflict with those identities. Unchallenged emotions, not filtered through our our identity in Christ or emotions of which we're not even aware, become our lens for interpreting the world, subconsciously impacting what we really believe, despite what we may confess with our mouths. We may claim to trust in the Lord. 
we may claim a new identity in him, but in reality, our internal lives can be a messy knot of fear, anger, unbelief, and bitterness. And we may not even be aware of it. But these, these will show themselves around those to whom we are closest, around those to whom we do not bother to put on a facade of holiness. And if you were like me, the parent of children still in the home, and if this describes you like it describes me, don't despair at your hypocrisy, but instead heed David's invitation to be silent and to ponder in your heart what false idol, what jealousy, what frustration, fear, or anxiety, or greed, or what have you, lies behind the behavior that comes out when your guard is down. This place of reflection and vulnerability in your inner life, in your emotional life, is where Christ does His work. Of renewal. The darkness that surprises you when you go to that place is why Christ lived and suffered and died and rose again so that you would no longer be condemned by it. Let the light of your true objective identity in Christ shine on your inner life. So that it might be brought more and more into conformity with Christ. Now if you're on the other side of this example. And you have either been impacted by the hypocrisy of another. Or even directly wounded by it. Don't let it turn to bitterness inside of you. It does not mean that the gospel or that Christ's presence And his church is false. It just means that the work of renewal is not complete. And it won't be until he comes or until we depart from this earth. Instead, lean more fully into the gospel as the only true hope of deep renewal. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And be on guard against hypocrisy yourself. Because the truth is is that it's never far from any of us. Be angry, David says to you. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. In verses 6 and 7, David applies his identity in God to engaging feelings of disappointment and emptiness. There are many who say, who will show us some good? In other words, we can't find lasting good. The people, people around us in our world say this all the time in all kinds of different ways, even if they know they're not saying it. There's an emptiness, there's a depression that's measurable in our world today. Who will show us some good? In other words, we can't find lasting good, lasting fulfillment. Everything is ultimately empty. 
We had hoped for lasting happiness, but it has proven to be elusive. We feel this, both Christians and non-Christians together feel this. Who hasn't experienced that sense of emptiness or malaise when we lose that initial sense of the peace and presence of God? This is an inevitable part of the Christian life, especially as the sense of newness in our, in our identities of Christ seems to fade. But we may also feel that God is distant when we are stuck in a besetting sin that we can't seem to master. We might feel it when we're stuck in circ- difficult circumstances that we can't really tell where God is, is going where he's taking us in the midst of those. We may even be tempted to question whether or not we really do have a new identity in Christ. It doesn't seem to make a difference to my day-to-day life. Do I actually have a new identity? Is this actually a thing? Or at the very least, we may, we may say, well, that's fine for church and all, but does it actually impact my day-to-day life. But David addresses this difficult emotion by remembering joy. Remembering that God's renewal of him brought him more fullness than all the best that the world has to offer. Verse 6b, lift up the light of your presence upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. His joy is greater in God than in the most bountiful harvest, which in his day and time was the the very symbol of plenty. It's common for us to lose a sense of that initial excitement that comes when God pulls us out of darkness to give us a new identity. Life's challenges don't magically stop, nor do we somehow blissfully float above them when we become believers. Kids are born and come with challenges, to say the least. Jobs change. They're taken from us, or we get new ones, or we get ones that don't really meet our needs, or that don't really fit us. We settle into the mundane routines and responsibilities of life such that we feel that just surviving takes all of our time and energy. We often realize that life will not live up to the expectations that we had for it when we were young. More and more of our sin becomes apparent to us. And it can be tempting to believe that something is wrong When we lose that sense of newness, how is it that I keep losing my temper with my kids day in and day out when I say that I believe in Christ, that I embrace this new identity? It can be tempting to believe that something is wrong. But Josh, Josh Kynes, the pastor of Parish Church, I'll credit him with this. He said it to me well a little while ago. Maturity in Christ should move us beyond the mere fact of our new identity and into a deepening search 
for wisdom in how to live out our identities well in the normal and often mundane, often difficult situations and challenges of life. And we do this, most importantly, by cultivating thankfulness, by cultivating joy. David cultivates this thankfulness by remembering that even if our spiritual lives seem stagnant for a season and there's a problem that we can't seem to overcome, and I don't have the solution, no one has that solution straight from Scripture for you, but even in these stagnant seasons, the joy of our identities in God surpass the best that this world has to offer, or in David's language, an abundance of grain and wine. Going to the New Testament for an example of this, we are reminded of Peter's great confession as recorded in John chapter 6, the Gospel of John chapter 6. At this point in Jesus' ministry, his popularity has been increasing as he performed miracle after miracle. Crowds are following his every move. But then he teaches them something hard and nearly incomprehensible to their ears. He says in John chapter 6, verses 51 through 56, that he is the living bread, the bread of life, and only those who eat his flesh and drink his blood, have life. What? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. No surprises. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Yes, Lord, this is a hard thing you've said. And part of me wants to say, why didn't you just keep the crowds coming? It was really making things happen. This is a hard place you've brought us to. And I don't fully understand it. And in fact, there was much that the disciples didn't understand until well after the resurrection of Jesus. This ministry was just starting to get off the ground. People were paying attention to you. But what you've just said here has destroyed it. We don't know what's going on. But we have come to know who you are. And we have come to know that your words are eternal life no matter what we are experiencing right now. So where else would we turn even now? We will continue to follow you. And Peter could very well have added at the end of that, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. It's fitting that David concludes Psalm 4 on a note of peace in in verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Ultimately, 
Our identities in Christ give us a sense of security in the midst of conflict and hardship and confusion. We know who we are. And we know that God is our vindicator and the source of our righteousness. And we know that He has revealed Himself to us through His Word. We know Him through His Word. And we know that we live before an audience of one and nothing can separate us from this promise. The world and the evil desires of our own hearts, as James talks about in James chapter 4, these call us constantly to seek our value and to seek security in all kinds of false idols. Maybe it's a perfectly planned career that will provide comfort and security. Perhaps it's perfectly ordered relationships with our spouses and children so that we can have conflict-free lives and perfectly well-ordered and color-coordinated households. Or a risk-free or risk-free financial future. The approval and respect of others or a perfectly balanced parenting technique that will guarantee that your kids are good solid Christians. A relatively new one at work in our culture now is a false psychological security which protects us from the need to engage views different from our own. It might even be a set of Christian-like rules or traditions that you implicitly believe that if you do this right, if we check all the boxes, then God will bless us and God will be with us. My particular temptation right now as I start a new ministry is that I I feel like I've got to plan everything to a T and have a, a perfectly a perfect ministry model for every eventuality so that I can feel like I'm in control in a ministry in a new work that does not have a playbook. One thing that all false idols claim to offer, falsely claim to offer, is a sense of control and security that makes us think that we are in charge that makes us think that if we just do the right things to manipulate our gods, then we can avoid difficulty and have the life we desire. By the way, this is what Baal worship in the Old Testament that Israel was always drawn back to. This is what it was about. It is not obscure to us. Baal was the god of rain and thunder. Israel's an arid country. They needed Baal to survive, to have food, so they thought. It's the same temptation at play in our lives, just through a different medium. But rather than avoiding difficulty, God calls us to embrace the identity that he provides in Christ in the midst of difficulty. Only he provides the words of eternal life, and only he can cause us to dwell in safety, as David says. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are broken and fickle people. Our sense of your presence comes and goes 
waxes and wanes as we move about this world and about its many challenges. But your promises remain true. The identity that you have given us does not change even when we find it hard to remember at times. You have given us your righteousness and you have made us your children. You've given us your constant and holy presence. You give us the ability to be renewed into your image. And you give us the promise of inheritance and glory with you. And these things can never be taken away. May these truths transform how we engage ourselves, Lord, our emotions, and the world around us. Amen.